Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. If you don't have a copy of that book, hop over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab one so you can learn the seven laws of life mission that we refer to often on this podcast. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, we'd love to grow our following and find more moms just like you who want to build principle-centered and mission-driven homes. To help us do that, you can subscribe. You can share the podcast out with friends and family. You can write us a review. And you can also join the Mastermind group. It's called the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the show discussion. We post videos and questions and other engaging ideas that correspond with what we've talked about on the podcast so we can discuss it throughout the week. I'm really excited to talk to you today for a few minutes about Maria Montessori. I have mentioned a couple times that I'm finishing up a master's degree. I did a class specifically just on Maria Montessori last year and wrote a final paper on educational principles that she puts forward in her works. We're going to go over some of those today and talk about how her principles can be applied to motherhood because they're really, really great. She begins with this... um, Summary of the effectiveness of the principles that she teaches. The extraordinary rapidity with which this system of education has been adopted for children of every race and every social condition has provided us with an abundance of experimental data and enabled us to identify common features and universal tendencies and thus to determine the natural laws upon which the education of children should be based. And she does mention natural laws quite often and corresponding principles. It's her frame of reference for everything that she teaches. And she really believes that there's a certain way that children grow and develop and certain principles that that, um, educators in her case, in our case, it would be parents need to honor to bring out the best in children. Now I should just mention as a side note, Maria Montessori was really, really brilliant. She lived in the 1800s. I think she was the first Italian woman to get a doctorate degree. She got multiple degrees. She was absolutely brilliant. And um, she started her work with um, mentally handicapped children. And when she saw tremendous results there, she was given this really cool opportunity to practice these principles in uh, what we would kind of call like a daycare now. The children were young. They were actually mostly under school age, up through about seven or eight, and they were there full time. It wasn't a traditional school. And that's one of the reasons I think that some of the principles she teaches can really be applied effectively by parents because it really was, I mean, they were there from like eight in the morning till five or six at night so that mothers in this complex, in this apartment complex, could go to work full time and provide for their families. In fact, it was the owners of the apartment complex that worked with her to start this school because they knew it would help the parents to be able to go to work and pay their rent. But it turned out to be this incredible opportunity to practice all these things that she'd studied forever 
And uh, as a side note, just in her personal life, she was a mother, but it was under unfortunate circumstances. She actually had an affair with one of, I can't remember if it was her professor or just another. uh, It was a man a little bit older than her. I think he was probably married anyway. They had an affair and she became pregnant and she decided to place the baby in the country with a family to be raised. And in the meantime, she spent her time nurturing other people's children in these schools that she developed. You can't help but grasp her tremendous love for children and her nurturing skills and abilities really come out in her writing. It's unfortunate that she wasn't raising her own son. I'm not exactly sure why she didn't bring him in and let him be part of these schools, but she had some contact with him. He was raised in the country by this other family. And in adulthood, they became close and he actually helped kind of carry on her work. They worked together. So um, there, I guess, was some reparation made there. Times were different in a lot of ways. And um, and so anyway, that's that's kind of an interesting side note about her personal life in her own mother mothering experiences. But in... In the way that she put forward this methodology, she tried it in one school and then they opened others and then other people under her tutelage opened more and more and more. And eventually there were just um, dozens of these schools and of course they went worldwide and you can still see Montessori schools on many street corners across the country. It was really, really heavily embraced by the United States. Uh, I guess we were just kind of ready to hear it. And the kinds of things that she said corresponded with you know, the studies of, of men like Piaget, who were really looking at childhood as a stage of its own, rather than looking at children as many adults who should be seen and not heard. These individuals in the 19th century were and into the 20th century were really trying to investigate what the true nature of childhood was. And so um, the kinds of things that, that I'm going to tell you about seem very commonplace today, a hundred years later, we've swallowed many of these principles whole, although sometimes I think we still fight them and struggle to implement them. But they were so revolutionary for the time. Uh, They were just not even really honored much. So the first principle, by far the most important that she promoted was the liberty of the child. This is what she says. The fundamental principle of scientific pedagogy must be, indeed, the liberty of the pupil. Such liberty as shall permit a development of individual, spontaneous manifestations of the child's nature. She goes on, the new education has as its primary aim the discovering and freeing of the child. Now, at the beginning of her work, she spends a lot of time, (laughs) she spends like two pages being really mad about desks and chairs because she feels like it's really wrong to have these adult-sized pieces of furniture in a classroom for young children. And so one of the first things that she does is have tables made. Children don't sit at desks, they sit around tables. Child-sized tables and child-sized chairs, which was really not done uh, before Montessori. But of course... It's so much bigger than the physical liberty that the, that the child begins to experience. And you'll see that really it's almost as if um, the liberty of the child is truly a, 
a first principle and these other principles fall under it of how do we then liberate the child and these are all the ways in which we honor that first principle and if you aren't familiar with the difference between natural law first principles and principles go to the podcast page at the missiondrivenmom.com and uh, or if you're on your app scroll down and you'll see that there's some of the first podcasts that I did because it's so important to have that frame of reference when when you're trying to build the principle centered home so anyway as a first principle the freeing of the child now on the one hand we love this principle today. We are all about, you know, giving children freedom and and honoring their natural growth processes. But there's quite a dichotomy here because on the other hand, we kind of don't. On the other hand, even though the desks are now child size and the chairs are child size, they're still in a typical classroom not a lot of liberty. I mean, the constructs of an elementary school that is still Montessori-based versus one that is not is quite different. We are still doing, even in most charter schools in the elementary ages, very much what has always been done in the United States, the one-room schoolhouse. You know, you've got the chair, the desks and the chairs and the child sits and, and, and listens to the instructions of the adult at the front who has the desk and... Um, and they're, they do what they're told to do. And the guidance of the classroom takes place uh, as instigated by the teacher. Now, what Maria Montessori wants to accomplish is, is the liberty of the child to pursue their education and to develop on their own. And so the first principle she institutes to help us honor and live this, um, this first principle, this principle that she puts forward is the prepared environment. So it's not just small desks and tables. There's no desk for the teacher. There might be a table where she keeps her things, but everyone is around the room. Nobody is facing a teacher. They're sitting at a table facing each other. And there are shelves where the learning apparatus are kept and the children have the freedom to go choose what they'd like to learn to work on it as long as they need to and want to, and to return it in an orderly fashion when they're done with it. Maria Montessori understands that children need repetition, and she wants to give them the opportunity to repeat an activity as many times as she feels they need to. In fact, she goes on about how um, there's almost a pattern to that they'll repeat it a certain number of times over a week or two and then exhaust that learning tool and have completely mastered it, and that is usually how they prefer to learn in these formative years. So the environment is kept clean and orderly. The children are taught how things are to be put away and constructed and cared for. And the materials that the children use are self-correcting. In fact, um, one of these self-correcting tools of, of the dozens and dozens that she developed over time was something that I used when my older children were really little. And they're these little sandpaper letters. You cut letters out of sandpaper and the child traces the letter and in that way they do a physical action with that letter while saying the sound of the letter and it really does help them learn their letters very quickly because they do a physical activity uh, in right along with the mental activity and the pairing of that for young children is just phenomenal so they have these self-appointed tasks they take, the, they take the learning tool down, they utilize it, and then they take it back. And this freedom, this physical freedom 
to choose what they will work on and to work on it indefinitely throughout the day. I mean, to take the same activity down and do it for an hour a day, day after day until they've mastered it really is even today for most teachers would probably be seen as quite radical. Maria Montessori has incredible amounts of evidence to prove that this isn't just because she was in the classroom or because she was doing it. It was, it's been executed throughout the world when people honored her principles and, and the ways in which she taught them when they really had a solid handle on how this was to be done, they saw tremendous results. And so the crossover for us as parents in this, in this allowing the liberty of the child now, of course, obviously it lends itself to a homeschooling model. I mean, anybody listening to this that's a homeschooler is like applauding, like, yes, so true. Um, but it doesn't have to be that you have to, to have them in a Montessori school in order for these principles to work. You can honor the liberty of your children by doing the same thing in your home, especially before the school ages. You can have learning tools that are self-correcting. You know, stackables are a good example of that. And allow the child to, to take it down. You teach them how to take it down and play with it and put it back in an orderly fashion. And that self-discipline that's created, which is really ultimately the culmination of these principles that she's teaching, I'll talk about that in a few minutes, is this internal self-discipline that the child it generates is really what we're going for. It's really what we want in the child. And so by showing them that the proper environment creates this peaceful feeling inside the child and inside the area in which they are. So I'll give you, I'll give you some more principles so you can kind of start to get your mind around what she's talking about. So you've got this prepared environment and the environment is clean. It's orderly. The child knows what's available to them to learn with. By the age of three or four, they should be able to engage in these kinds of activities. They should be expected to put away what they've been playing with before they get something else down. And this creates a lifelong habit. Older children should do this for sure if they're taught when they're young. So the next principle that she teaches is preparation of the teacher. And I just want to read you this quote um, this is not Maria Montessori, but I think it dovetails really beautifully. This is E. Christian Kopf. He says, most people understand that in order to participate in science, students need a long and rigorous education. Few people think this about religion and democracy. And I am as puzzled by this as was Socrates. Now I would extend that to motherhood. Okay, so most people understand that in order to gauge in science, you need a long and rigorous science education. I would argue that in order to educate our children and in order to be effective as mothers, we need to educate ourselves. We need a long and rigorous education in what it means to be a great mom. And of course, that's a lot of what the Mission Driven Mom is trying to help us do, give us the tools to meet our needs and engage in self-discovery and manage ourselves, those three prime principles from level one that we want to really engage in that love of self and love of God uh, from the mission-driven life that I talk about in that book. So this really uh, fits perfectly with this model of Maria Montessori, this principle that you must be prepared and that you can prepare and that you don't have to be a victim of your motherhood. You know, you chose it or whatever the case might be. Maybe you feel that you didn't choose it, but here you are. 
and you may as well do the best job you can do. And so, first of all, Maria Montessori wants the teacher to have to be a person of high moral character. This is what she says, someone who is willing to prepare himself internally by systematically studying himself so that he can tear out his most deeply rooted defects, those in fact which impede his relations with children. So there's an extensive self-evaluation that is prerequisite to good teaching. Montessori wants the teacher to be someone who is humble and who has a high respect for themselves and for other people, someone who will honor the freedom and personal development of others because they respect those things in themselves. She, she explains it this way. There is, there is here a question of a deeper calm, an empty or better unencumbered state that is a source of inner clarity. This calm consists in a spiritual humility and intellectual purity necessary for the understanding of the child and which as a consequence must be found in the teacher. So she wants someone who really has a love of God and self, who is really self-managing and can remain calm and quiet. You know, Mortimer Adler would very much agree with Maria Montessori on this, that a great educator is someone who is self-educating, who is always learning. And so if we want our children to progress and to grow, it would behoove us to set that model and be someone who is learning and growing ourselves, right? And who is increasing our own spiritual depth and, and teachability. And so she wants um, the instructor to be trained to work in a passive capacity in the classroom. She says the teacher must understand and feel her position of observer. This new system of education has been widely discussed, particularly with respect to the reverse roles of child and adult, the teacher without a desk, without authority, and almost without teaching, and the child, the center of activity, free to move about as he wills and to choose his own occupations. And so this principle is so key that a mother is prepared and not perfect, not, ha not, not having arrived, but of a quiet inner peace and a level of self-management that can create an environment, a physical environment of learning and personal growth, of calm, of discipline, of, of peace and quiet that children can enjoy and relish in and learn from. Children love, and anyone who's parented for very long know that children love order. Um, it often happened when I, when I did some homeschooling with my kids that if I asked them, you know, what I could improve on, often they wanted more order, not less. So it, it, we won't, we don't want to manage them and we don't want to, to control them, but we want to model self-discipline and encourage them to take ownership of themselves by giving them the freedom to do that. If we're always micromanaging them, then they never have to take ownership for themselves. I'll never forget, um, the first time I, I, um, got in touch, uh, not in touch. I, I found the author of the me, me, me epidemic. I can't remember her name right now. Um, and one of the things that she said was that children, by the time they're eight years old, should be able to set their own alarm, wake themselves up and get themselves ready for the morning and out the door. And 
And that's really a different paradigm than we have today. But if you look back, you know, if you're someone that's reading good classics and you're learning about what children used to do and be responsible for, you know that our children really are capable of more. So anyway, this, um, this leads us to the next principle, which is trust in the child's intuitive self-knowledge, respect for the child and his or her psychological and spiritual development. So what Montessori repeatedly puts forward is this principle that says children come pre-wired ready for their own development and self-discovery. And we need to give them the freedom to engage in that process. We need to trust that they will pick up the learning tools, pick up the books and, and, and be guided, kind of self-guided toward those things that they will have intuitive gifts in or that they intuitively need to learn, that they have this intuitive sense and that uh, that most of the time where the adults err is on the side of getting in the way of telling children that we know better about what they ought to learn and what they ought to know and how they ought to behave. Now, this doesn't mean that we're boundaryless. This doesn't mean that they walk all over us. This means that we are a certain kind of person that creates a certain kind of environment and that they understand the parameters of that environment and they have freedom within bounds. That is a really important first principle that applies to many areas of life. And I think ultimately that liberty of the child is that principle of freedom within bounds that Maria Montessori is really trying to put forward. She says, a child's psychic life should develop naturally and reveal its inner secret. Unless this principle is maintained, all later attempts at education will only lead one more deeply into an endless maze. And so she wants the educator to trust this intuitive um, ability of the child to be self-educating. And then what she says is that this, this fifth principle will follow of spontaneous self-discipline. She persistently proclaims discipline must come through liberty. That only when people have sufficient amounts of freedom can they truly develop self-discipline because otherwise they're just automatons who are blindly doing what they're told to please someone outside of themselves and you see this in the entitlement of, 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 of children and young adults. You see this in the adults. This trend towards adults living at home at later and later ages is more commonplace. They don't know how to take their role in society because they weren't given the liberty to develop the self-discipline necessary. I've just been reading the autobiography of Davy Crockett, and he talks about leaving home at 12. He wasn't happy with what was going on, so he just took off, and he, he lived on his own for like a year, and then he went home, and then he took off again, and then they went home. And, and it's amazing how he, he met his needs, how much children can do when we give them the freedom to do so. She says... When a normal child is attracted by an object, he fixes his whole attention intently upon it and continues to work without a break in a remarkable state of concentration. After the child has finished his work, his, he appears satisfied, rested, and happy. And this is why she could proclaim that her method brought about an orderly, quiet, 
happy feeling in the classroom because these children understood the boundaries of the classroom and what they were allowed to do. And they had so much freedom and the classroom was so orderly and so quiet that they were able to develop naturally and to engage in self-discovery and to be self-educating. She calls it auto-education. So I want to give you really quickly before we finish up a couple examples of the kinds of things that would have gone on in her classroom, games that she played and other things that she did that brought about some of this spontaneous discipline. One of the examples that she gives is um, in prizes and punishments. She says, once we have accepted and established such principles, the abolition of prizes and external forms of punishment will follow naturally. Man, disciplined through liberty, begins to desire the true and only prize which will ever belittle or disappoint him. The birth of human power and liberty within that inner life of his from which his activities much must spring. So she gives this example of some teacher who wasn't really following her instructions and had decided to come up with their own reward and punishment program. And so they, they, this teacher had created this beautiful medal with this ribbon that, that children could earn and that they would get to wear. And then this chair that went in the middle of the room for punishment that you had to sit there and you couldn't do anything and everybody would look at you and you would be embarrassed and shamed. And so she walked into this classroom one day where this was what had been done. And she could see that because there was a child being punished and there was a child wearing the medal. And, uh, she didn't say anything. She just observed what was going to happen. And so the child who had the medal on was, was going about the room, busily learning, grabbing different tools, learning from them, putting them away. And as he did so at one point, he was crossing by where this, he dropped something on the floor. And as he picked it up, his medal fell off. And the child that was being punished looked at him and said, do you see what you have dropped? And he looked at this child who had been punished and he said, I don't care. And the one being punished said, don't you care really? Then I will put it on myself. And the one who had won the prize said, oh yes, please put it on. So neither of them really cared about the punishment or the reward that they had received. She says usually what they did when a child was disrupting the quiet and orderly environment that, that was meant to be there was they would receive extra attention. They would be given a doctor's exam to make sure there was no kind of illness or something wrong with them. And when they were assured that the child was sound and healthy, they would um, put them off on a table where they could use tools that they wanted to learn with, but they had to do that alone. And they were kind of left in a little bit of isolation. She would go to them. She would give them love and care. They were kind of treated, she said, as if they were ill. To had to be a little bit isolated. And then they would want to come back and be with the children and honor and respect the others. And then really, that's so much of what of what she's trying to teach here is this principle of respect. And, and I mentioned, you know, that the teacher would respect the child, but really the bigger principle is that everyone in this classroom is respecting each other. And that is something that we as moms all need to create in our homes, an environment where everyone is respecting each other. You know, I hated as a child to be teased. and I have not allowed my children to tease each other because I feel like it's a disrespectful practice. It treats someone else as a thing and not as a person. And so, um, this, 
this kind of teaching that she does with these children by example, by showing them this is the kind of environment we're creating, she's helping them to respect each other. And you know what? They feel so much better about themselves. They respect themselves and they respect each other. And that's really when they are disrupting the classroom, they are not respecting the other students and their need and desire to learn. So here's, um, here's another thing that she talks about she says, um, the educational conception of this age must be solely that of aiding the psychophysical development of the individual. And this being the case, agriculture and animal culture contain in themselves precious means of moral education. So she goes on to talk about how when children are given things to care for, and she would usually have like plants in the room and other things like that, at least for the children to care for, um, that they learned, she said, it is the plaintive voice of the needy life which lives by his care. And it teaches the children self-discipline because they must care for something that is that is at their disposal, you know, that they it will die if they don't care for it. And they learn empathy in that way as well. And it says the child can logically be brought to appreciate the care which the mother and the teacher take of him. So she feels like it also increases the child's respect for the parents and the teacher when they care for something else. Um, one last little thing, something I really loved that she teaches is I think very important for all of us. She teaches them the importance of silence. And not only is the, is the classroom usually pretty quiet and, you know, you know with a buzz of activity, people learning, and, and the children are welcome to talk to each other and, and, and learn together. But usually there's a lot of this auto-education going on where they're teaching themselves. So she says, she has this part where she talks about games of silence that she plays with the children. There's a couple different ways that she does this. One is that she'll turn the lights down and have everyone put their, um, well, she no, the, the first one is, she'll be really, really quiet at the front of the classroom and they'll notice how quiet she's being. And then they'll ask them if they can be as quiet as her. And it becomes this really fun game of listening to their own breath, listening to the wind and the sounds outside and noticing the smallest noises that they make with their feet. Another fun way that she does it is she turns the lights down really low and she has them put their heads on their desks and then she goes into an adjoining room and she whispers their names. And as they whisper, as, as they hear their name, they have to be very quiet to hear their name. And then as quietly as possible, they tiptoe to her without making any noise. And through these games, another, another time she talks about bringing a sleeping baby in her arms into the classroom and asking the children if they could be as quiet as the baby. She really did have a great love of children. They continually inspired her and surprised her um, with the ways in which they spontaneously learned. She was shocked to find how much they loved order and self-discipline, how much they wanted silence and order and quiet and to respect each other and to be respected. And it all goes back to this principle of freedom within bounds and honoring the liberty of the child and then preparing ourselves as mothers, preparing ourselves personally and preparing the environments of our home to be places where they can have freedom within bounds to grow and learn to respect themselves. And thereby, she says, 
that that spontaneous self-discipline will begin to develop. I want to end with this. She says at one point that um, they were they were doing a game to learn to read and they were given these pieces of paper that had words on them. And their job was it was it was a fun little game where they could read the paper in their mind and practice it. They weren't supposed to say anything. They went up and quietly picked it up and then they read it. And then when they could read it aloud correctly to the teacher, they could choose a toy that they wanted to play with. She says, but what was my amazement when the children, having learned to understand the written cards, refused to take the toys. They explained that they did not wish to waste time in playing and with a species of insatiable desire preferred to draw out and read the cards one after another. I watched them seeking to understand the secret of these souls of whose greatness I had been so ignorant. Our children are great. They have greatness in them. And when we understand correct principles, just a few of which I've delineated from Maria Montessori today, we can help to draw out their greatness and help them become who they were meant to become. Thanks so much for joining me today. If this was helpful, please share it out and give us a review. And we'd love to talk all about these principles from Maria Montessori in our Facebook group with you this week. So go to the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and request to join and I'll see you there.